Welcome to the Firearm Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about books that all instructors should be reading. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun ownership more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Head on over to their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Mantis X. A couple of years ago, I came across Mantis X at a trade show. I saw a lot of potential for myself and my students in it. Now, I can do my own dry fire practice at home and get expert feedback on what I need to do to improve my own trigger press. But besides improving my own shooting, it also allows me to help my students by having them use the device on their firearm to augment my coaching. It's like having an expert shooting coach right next to me with a student on the range. They work out so well that I actually had a friend who borrowed mine, then paid me for it because he wouldn't give it back. Get yourself a Manus Axe and you'll see why it's such a valuable tool for improving your shooting and your students. Today we are joined by Dave Spalding from Handgun Compatives and our very first guest on the podcast. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for coming back. Well, thank you for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. One of the things uh, some of our listeners may or may not uh, know who you are. Can you give us a short uh, bio of your background? Well, I've been doing this for just a couple of years. Let's say about four decades. Um, I got started in it um, via law enforcement. You know, uh, in 1980, when my agency created their SWAT team, they realized pretty quickly that they needed someone to coordinate training. So that, that began the journey for me. I headed off to firearms instructor school and, uh, geez, I got certified in revolver, pistol, submachine gun, carbine, shotgun, and, you know, all kinds of less lethal stuff and various uh, chemical agents and just a, a whole long list of instructor certifications. And then, uh, um, did that via law enforcement for the vast majority of my adult life. You know, even though I'm, I'm known more and more now as a private sector trainer, the vast majority of my time has been spent training law enforcement officers. And then uh, when I could no longer take working for the government anymore, I uh, quit and at the age of 55, opened up handgun combatives and decided to focus on handgun combative handgun training directed mostly at the armed citizen. And that's what I've been doing for the last decade. You hear a lot more and more good stuff about all the training you are putting out there for people, as well as uh, unfortunately you're uh, dwindling back in your training and focus more on your family, which is uh, a good reason to uh, cut back on your training. Well, it's not so much that I, that I don't enjoy the training anymore. I still do. I disdain air planes and airports and hotels and rental cars and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm, I'm winding it down. I'm going to continue to do some classes, but it'll be probably mostly local stuff. Which is good because I'm local to you and I plan on uh, getting to a handgun combative course uh, this year for sure. It's uh, got on my calendar already. Don't wait too long. If you haven't uh, signed up, it's pretty full already. Yeah, I was looking at them last night and thinking I got to click the uh, click the register buttons on them. Well, hey, this is one of our first podcasts of the 2020 year, and one of the things I thought would be really good to talk to a very experienced uh, person in the industry is we've gone along, 
people talk about, you know, getting classes on the range, uh, instructors going along and, you know, really having that understanding the gun. But I think one thing that we overlook sometimes in putting all the emphasis on the range is what are some really good reading materials that you found useful over your decades of experience? Uh, some of them might be, you know, brand new in the last year and some of them might be, you know, once from almost a hundred years ago and want you to come on and talk to our instructors and give them some reading materials, because if we're not out training, we should probably be going along and thinking about, Hey, getting a book. And as the snow's falling outside or we're waiting for the warmer weather to get out and train, think read, read about some materials and sharpen our skills in those areas too. Well, you know, I can't remember a time in my adult life when I didn't have a stack of books waiting to be read. And that is still the case even today, even though I'm trying to get to the bottom of that now because I'm, I'm getting to the stage of my life where um, I'm having a real hard time finding anything new. Oh, I can find things that are repackaged or retitled, but let's face it, Rob, there's only so many ways to shoot a gun and they've all been invented. <laughs> so much of my time has not been in researching how to put the gun in your hand and, and work the trigger. It's the human physiology behind that. And I, I went to college. My, my goal was to be a secondary school teacher and a track and field coach before I ended law enforcement. So I had a minor in sports physiology. So I understood, I had a pretty good understanding of how the human body functions and, and works and moves and how to enhance those abilities and how to be efficient and all that kind of stuff. And when I started getting involved in firearms training, primarily shooting a handgun, because regardless of what law enforcement officers want to believe, the handgun always has been, always will be their primary firearm because it's the gun they have with them all the time. Because so much of law enforcement confrontations are reactive or reflexive because they happen in the moment. It's not like military going into battle and then you're getting ready to confront somebody. In a law enforcement mode, you're standing there talking to somebody when suddenly they turn bad and now because you're in a bad position, you're going to guns. Well, that's just not the realm of a carbine or a shotgun. That's the realm of a handgun. So I've spent a lot of my time looking at handgun training, handgun fighting, and all that kind of stuff, including lots and lots of interviews. So the first thing that I would suggest to your viewers or listeners is to get a good understanding of sports physiology, human motion, motor learning, and all those kind of things. And this is just one example. There's any number of books out there that will deal with motor function, biomechanics, uh, sports physiology. This one's my favorite. This is Motor Learning and Performance. It's by Dr. Richard Schmidt. And I think this is in its fifth or sixth edition. I'm not sure which edition this is, but you know what? All of the editions are like and similar, and the information is good. Basically, the newer editions have got newer research and stuff like that. But that's the first thing I want any instructor in firearms to understand is how the human body functions. Elbows bend a certain way. Wrists perform a certain function. The human hand does certain things, and a lot of people don't really grasp that they go along with something that they were told by someone else who was told that and they told that, and then they just accept it because it's been around so long. Well, it must be fact. Well, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's totally wrong. I'll give you an example. 
I can remember when we were going from revolvers to semi-automatic pistols in law enforcement. And one of the things that came out and was over and over again expressed is that you will not have the digital dexterity to use your thumb on the slide stop, slide release, slide lock. And I can remember sitting there thinking, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> because, you know, you can push in on the mag button, but you couldn't push down on the slide stop. Well, anybody that understands how the human hand works understands that the thumb can push down with greater coordination and strength than it can push in. So I knew that right then and there was BS, but you know, you didn't say anything because the big names in the training arena were spouting off that basically because they wanted you to manipulate the slide. And even more ludicrous is that we were leaving revolvers where you had to push forward on the cylinder release. You had to pop the cylinder out. You had to hit the eject craziness. But uh, it's like Ronald Reagan said, you know, trust but verify. Just because some famous person or your particular instructor says that something is a fact, it is so easy to get into all of these fantastic books and find out what's true and what's not. So the first thing I would tell them is understand human physiology. Yep. And that's, that's a good, good area to start into because Put it this way, you know, whether revolver, semi-automatic, we're all using those, our digits, we're using our wrist or legs, everything. We've got to understand how those things work. If we're going to go along properly instruct a student, whether it's an experienced shooter or whether it's a brand new novice shooter, we've got to understand that so that we give them the best instruction possible. Sure. Great, great yeah, advice. Mean- If you look at the word efficiency, that's one of them words that's thrown around all the time in firearms training. And, you know, people give it, give it its own definition because they want it to fit a certain way for them. Well, if you look at Mr. Webster's definition, efficiency is merely the least amount of time, effort, and energy expended, period. That's it. So if you're doing some moving around manipulation kind of a thing, it's not efficient unless it's the least amount of time, effort, and energy expended. And that's important because we're not talking about shooting here. We're talking about a gunfight. How much time do you think you have in a gunfight, especially a close quarter pistol fight, which tend to happen inside 10 yards? You don't have a whole lot of time. It better be pretty simple. It be, better be pretty straightforward. And it better be done in such a way that it keeps the gun between you and the potential threat, not over here doing some weird manipulation. So understanding human physiology, and then once you understand how the human body works, how it folds, how it bends, how it presents, how it can do the things it can do, and how you can maximize that, the next thing you have to deal with is how the human brain functions. How that, you know, physiology and how those mental aspects marry together because they do marry together well. And oftentimes that is poorly taught and applied. So understand that kind of stuff. Which brings me into one of my favorite books, Unleashing the Warrior Within. It's by Richard Makowitz. Some of those, some viewers may remember the Discovery Show. It was called, uh, geez, I can't remember the name of it, but he was the host of it. And it had to do with new military technology. Does that ring a bell with you, Rob? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, but then I don't watch a whole lot of cable. So that's probably okay. one reason why. Well, he was the host and he just called himself Mac. 
But this book right here goes into great detail about how the human mind works, how, you know, you can uh, achieve your combat goals, how to make it make make physical skills marry with mental aspects and things like that. I don't know if it's any longer in print, but, you know, with the Internet, you can you can uh, search that out. Another book that deals with the mind and how it works is called The Warrior's Edge. And this is by uh, Colonel John R. Alexander, Major Richard Roller, and Janet Morris. And this has to do with neuro-linguistic programming or the language of the brain. Now, a lot of people say that NLP is junk science, but I have not found that the case because it's basically the modeling of excellence through visualization and taking the mind's ability to visualize skills and marrying it with actually physical skills. And it actually talks about the Jedi project that the military actually undertook within the Intelligence and Security Command. And in a nutshell, what the Jedi project was, is they took a group of people and taught them how to shoot the 1911 pistol traditionally, you know, repetitions on the range. And they took another group over here and they went through visualization exercises, not allowing them to make mental mistakes. And at the end of the test, basically the people that did the mental imaging scored higher shooting than did the people that just did the hard skills alone. So start looking into the mental aspects of learning and how that marries with the physical skills. And I think it's really important because when we are talking about the citizen defender, um, you know, we're talking about you know, having a gun, but we're also how many different things do we need to analyze instantaneously to know whether we can shoot properly, draw properly, whether there's a escape route, all those types of things from being in a, uh, you know, some kind of church setting. If we're in a grocery store or just, you know, in an alley someplace, all of a sudden we've got to be able to go along and do that checklist almost instantaneously to figure out what the best course of action is. And the only way we can do that, because Let's face it, as civilians, we're not going to be going through and doing shootouts, shoot houses every week to go along and build that from experience. We're going to be going along and having to say, okay, if I'm in, in the church and this happens, then, you know, this is, this is what I'm going to think about doing. And, you know, what's the pros and cons between it? Or is the best way to just hightail it out of there? Because, you know, it's not my, not my problem. And, you know, that's, that's a legitimate way to deal with things, too. Well, and people are going to suffer what's called normalcy bias because they mm -hmm. go through a routine day in, day out. Things are relatively normal. And when something like a shooting or an attack does happen, their brain is going to shift into a bias that, you know, this is not normal. There, there's got to be a reason for this. They're going to be looking for an explanation other than, hey, this guy's just trying to hurt me. So you've got to get through that, which leads us to the next recommended book. And if people are only going to read one book, whether they're instructors or they're just people interested in combative skills, it's by um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, and it's called On Combat. Now, I know he's better known for On Killing, and that's a fine book, don't misunderstanding. But this book right here covers the widest array of things you need to know about armed conflict and just, just physical danger in general in one book. If you're only going to read one book, 
this is the one to read. And if you're an instructor, this is a must read because that's going to make you understand how the body, how the brain goes through its changes, like biases and, and loss of physical skills better than anything I've ever read. I, I agree. And I'll say one thing about that book. I had a good friend da- down here who's uh, was involved in an in a officer-involved shooting. And he said he read that book beforehand. And afterwards, everything that he talked about, the physiology and the mentally, he went through. And he, he said what saved him was he realized that he was going through it, but it's normal. I mean, it wasn't that he was an odd or anything else like that. And I can still remember seeing the body, uh, the dash cam video to mm-hmm. where he started going along and just about, you know, vomiting because of all that adrenaline that dumped all those emotions that were hitting. And I highly recommend that to the people that I teach both, uh, the students as well as the instructors, because it prepares you, um, quite a bit. And, and that's firsthand knowledge. I mean, it's not something I've been through with somebody that's been in the office officer involved shooting, um, says that's, you know, on mark on right right spot on so once we've dealt with how the human body works physically and how it marriage marriage marries to the mental aspects then we have to start talking about shooting the gun and of course whether we're talking about a handgun carbine shotgun you know a shooting is is shooting and the fact that in combative shooting let me let me throw this at you rob what is the single most important thing you can do in a gunfight Persevere, survive. Yeah. See, it's usually things like that, but it's even more rudimentary. It's more foundational than that. Are you ready? Yeah. It's get the gun between you and them. Fair enough. Because until you get the gun between you, tell the muzzles pointed at your threat, everything else is just eyewash, right? Mm-hmm. So the single most important thing is get the gun between them. So now we're talking about fighting. Now, one of my more favorite books happens to be uh, this one right here. It's called Handgun Combatives. And I guess I don't need to probably push that anymore. So let's go on to some other ones. Let's talk about shooting just as an activity. Mike Plaxco is shooting from within. It's more based at competition and practical shooting, but uh, I had the opportunity to spend time on the range with Mike one-on-one, and I probably learned more about how to run a handgun during that session than any other time in my life he really grasped the practical shooting and how to actually get the gun between you and the threat and work the trigger. Along with that is Brian Enos's practical shooting, uh, or excuse me, a practical shooting beyond fundamentals. These two are just about how to work the handgun, how to do the foundational skills. Uh, my book, Handgun Combatives, kind of comes in where it becomes uh, a combative application, a combative skill. And then a step beyond that is Bob Talbert's Rattenkrieg, which really goes beyond combative pistol craft into more like SWAT applications, room clearing, things like that. And that is something that is worth knowing about. So you've got to take it from a plinking instrument or a, uh, a, an instrument of enjoyment and make it a weapon of warfare per se. And th- those books will do that really, really well. Those are a few books I haven't read myself, so I will. Uh, I'm adding to my list of uh, must reads for uh, 2020, right there. Okay, so now that we know a little bit about handgun shooting, let's talk a little bit about where it came from. Charles Askins, the art 
of handgun shooting. And this was directed at combative shooting. It's mostly revolver oriented because it's a very, very old book. But you'll get the opportunity to see about how some of the original masters, the people that created the stuff that we do right now, where this stuff came from. So this is a must read. The next one is from my buddy, Greg Morrison, who was at one time was the operations manager at Gunsight. And it is the modern technique of the pistol. And this is actually sold at Gunsight. I think that's where I got it from. But this will tell you the history of what Jeff Cooper was thinking, how it came to pass, how it was applied at Gunsight. Um, and it's just really, really good to understand the history of this because, well, you know, you know, that modern technique's obsolete. No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. Because most everybody that teaches a handgun class probably teaches something like stance, grip, trigger, drawing from the holster, reloading, clearing stoppages. That was Colonel Cooper's format. So we're all basically taking his modern technique of the pistol and maybe we're kind of tweaking it or reflexing it and we're including the stuff that we want to include, but that was his package. So it's worth knowing where it came from. Um, Along those same lines is what we talked about, Dr. Alexis Artwall and Deadly Force Encounters. Now, this is the older edition. I have yet to get the new one. I've got to add that to the stack. But this right here is like on combat. It is a must read for not only instructors, but for practitioners as well. And for our listeners that are out there, I am working and uh, reading her new book and going to have her on and have a, a lengthy discussion with her about her update to that book, which uh, is should be very enlightening because I'm um, halfway through the book and uh, I've already wrote down several notes that are going to create a, quite a bit of uh, conversation, I'm pretty sure, with her expertise. Sure, sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about history, but also about uh, some kind of the, the controversies. Sighted fire versus point shooting. Well, the first thing you need to understand is you need to understand what point shooting really is or what target focus shooting really is because there is a lot of misinformation about it. Um, Rex Applegate's Kill or Get Killed. That's a must read. That is probably the, 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 um, uh, the best book about um, what Fairbairn was talking about. You know, his shooting to live was a decent book, but it was pretty thin, pretty basic. Colonel Applegate took those principles and went further. And even another good one is Bill Cassidy's Quicker Dead, which expands on it even more. Those two will tell you what point shooting or what target focus shooting really was, because it's not either or, it's both. There are times when target focus shooting applies. There are times that sighted fire applies but all of them require you to get the gun between you and the threat and going to work. So understanding that is worth it. And then kind of last but not least, because because now I've already given you 15 or 18 books for most people, that'll be 15 or 18 years. Oh, did I say that? I apologize. That sounded <laughs> um, by Joseph Rosa, the gunfighters. I am a, big fan of reading about the old West gunfighters. I know in this day and age, everybody wants to talk about special operators and stuff. And don't misunderstand. Those guys are solid, but they're not pistol fighters for the most part. These guys were pistol fighters, you know, contact distance, bad breath gunfights where their hammers or their revolvers got tied up in their watch chain when they were trying to bring them into action. So things like this one, the gunfighters is excellent. 
and probably one of the best books I've ever read, Wyatt Earp Speaks. And this is uh, edited by John Stevens, but it's basically a series of magazine articles and interviews and stuff like that about Wyatt Earp. And he talks about such thing as shooting on the move or moving while shooting, which, well, that's a new concept. Yeah, it was new about 1871. So, you know, a lot of really good stuff. Understanding how the old West gunfighters thought will give you a real window into the current firearms instructor, or at least it should. Yeah, uh, I've read, I don't think I've read those books specifically, but the, I've got one or two of the old books. And, you know, they talk about, you know, basically where they, where they carried them and what kind of holsters they carried. And you go along and think about it. It's like, Hmm, we're getting back to that same type of, you know, uh, carrying it appendix. Well, they carried appendix as it was easier to, easier to, you know, draw and cock cock the hammer on those single action Colts. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to dig it up, but I, I, I have an appendix carry holster, I think from the 1880s. Oh, wow. It's, it's nothing new. Uh, appendix carry was, was somewhat popular because a lot of people don't realize that in many of the, the towns, you know, the Abilene's and Tombstone's and Virginia cities and Dodge cities and stuff like that, you could not carry openly in town. You had to surrender your guns. Many people carried their guns concealed. So they put them down the front of their pants because it was easy. Now, a, the appendix carry, the way I view it, is forward of the hip. There's there's an actual a natural pocket to the side of your abdomen is where most of these people put it. You know, nowadays we're kind of moving more towards the front of the abdomen, which I don't care. That's up to you. Carry the gun where you want. But that was not an unusual technique. As a matter of fact, I read uh, a little thing uh, about Luke Short, who is one of the old West gunfighters and gamblers. He actually was known for carrying his down the front of his pants and he would open the loading gate of his peacemaker to keep it from falling down his pants. <laughs> so little things like that uh, are very, very common. No, appendix carry isn't new. Uh, uh, Bruce Nelson, the, the guy that actually created the summer special holsters and stuff like that, he was a big believer in, in carrying forward of the hip. And he and I had a number of conversations about that in the early 1990s. Uh, so, you know, what's new is old again and what's old is new and, and all that kind of stuff. Once again, there's only so many places to carry a gun, only so many ways to shoot it. And anybody that comes up with the latest, greatest thing, it's not true. It's been done before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where I think understanding, you know, some of the basics behind it, not just the firearms, but you know, the mind and how people actually work, because especially from a civilian standpoint, uh, I spent a significant amount of my classes when I'm teaching concealed carry and advanced concealed carry, making sure the students understand the mental part of it, because the gun, the gun is going to fire in a split second over done with hopefully, you know, they, they persevere, but at the same time, what they've decided in that split second will could haunt them for the rest of their life. And that's where it's more important to make sure they got the proper mental attitude before they get themselves into trouble with the physical side of things. The the person that can keep their head in the duress of conflict, everybody talks about the stress. It's not stress, it's duress, it's pressure. But the person that can keep their head in the duress of conflict, especially close quarter gunfighting, is the one that will probably prevail. Seldom does it have to do with how fast their splits are, how quick their draw is, uh, how cool their reload looks and stuff like that. That's just all eyewash. It's the stone cold person, the person that can stand there and be ruthless in that moment, get the gun between them and the threat and go to work. That's the one that's going to win. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and to your point, you talk about the, the operators that we have out there, um, you know, military and such. You know, what makes them different than the every day? They train every day over and over again to make sure they can execute that flawlessly every time. And they're o- overcoming that those natural tendencies. And yeah, that's where, from head. a civilian standpoint, we've got to work very hard at doing that because we may only be training once a month or, you know, potentially less than that. And obviously, we're going to have a lot more to overcome if we're not training on a regular basis. Well, the thing is, is that every time you're in, involved in some sort of a conflict or a fight like that, it gets a little easier the next time because you know what to expect. The problem is, is that you don't want too many of those experiences because you can do everything absolutely right and still die. Mm-hmm. Or because, get injured. You know. uh, in conflict, it happens. If you know what I'm trying to refer to here, I'm trying to keep it clean. It happens. And I mean, if you look at our special operators, they're killed with alarming regularity by people far less skilled than they are. Somebody that just took an AK and went up over the top of a a wall and cut loose with a burst of fire and kills one of these guys. It can happen. So you don't want too many of those experiences. So the best way to try to get an experience that will simulate that type of uh, situation is interactive training. And the problem with interactive training is, is that most people don't know how to do it well. You know, so many of these scenarios or training sessions, I see it turn into grabby butt where people are, you know, they're, they're just having a good time where that type of training has to be very uh, tightly scripted because if you're trying to deliver a particular message or a particular lesson, your role players have to be capable of doing that without that desire to want to win. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because everybody wants to win. Right. That's not their job. So, I mean, interactive training has to be tightly scripted, but it can be done. And then, of course, there's electronic simulators. But how many of our armed citizens get the chance to work on the electronic simulator? I mean, many of maybe have sampled it, got the opportunity to get in one. But to actually get the lessons from it, you know, it's a half day endeavor to actually do training in electronics. Well, and you have to do it repeatedly. You know, it's not just one half day. It's in doing a couple half days every year and, you know, regular coming up and saying, okay, what would you do in a situation like this? And having those simulators that get updated on a regular basis with uh, new situations. I can honestly say that I have probably spent hundreds of hours in an electronic simulator. Because my former agency had one, still does. Mm-hmm. And so we worked it hard. And of course, I went to FATS instructor and to do that, it was a week long and you had to do it over and over again. And nowadays they're so good because, you know, they're 360 and they deliver an electronic shock and all that kind of stuff. Now you don't have to worry about role players. But again, very expensive. You know, how many people get the opportunity to do that? If you ever do, take it. Yeah, I've, I've only done it a handful of times and it's probably less than an hour you know, yeah. simulator altogether because you do it and it's like two or three minutes and you spend five minutes debriefing on it about what you did because you're put into a situation and it's very eye opening. Yeah. But I would I would like to go through and do, you know, dozens of hours on it to really say, okay, if this happens, this is what I'm gonna do and yeah. be able to really feel like I'm prepared for it. But I don't have access to that. Most civilian trainers most, don't don't have that. Most- most EDC carriers do not. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. So that's uh, given us a lot to uh, think about, Dave. Any uh, other uh, I, I've words? read a few books over the years. Yeah, you, you have, and you've uh, 
like we were talking about beforehand, you've, you've got some newer books and you've got some of the older books. Um, I could say I probably read about a third of these books already. So I'm, uh, well on my way, but, uh, again, I'm going to add, add to my list and it's always good to hear what books other people are reading that they found useful because we're all doing the same type of thing. You know, I might be training people here in Ohio. Somebody else is training people in California, but the human, uh, involved with it is all the same we still have to know this the physiology the psychology you know how the firearm works all those things are the same but then we're not done Mm -hmm. because once we get through all that stuff we must now continue in to the legalities Mm -hmm. the legal aspects now this is masayub's most recent book uh deadly force uh but him and andrew bronca and a number of other people marty hayes there's a number of people out there who are focusing on the legal aftermath of this and, um, you know, uh, uh, CCW safe and, and the armed citizens network and all these people that are, you know, doing insurance programs and things, that stuff is just absolutely awesome. So though you don't need to be a lawyer, you do need to have a, a, a good understanding of the legalities of use of, of deadly force. And, and basically in a nutshell, if you don't have to fight, don't, if you can escape, do so. By the same token, I realize everybody has a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in my particular case, you know, I, I'll try to get away and, unless there's children involved. You know, I, I decided a long time ago that if there were children in the line of fire or in danger, I'm launching. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to stand there and do that. But, um, you know, other people may not have that line in the sand. So you got to kind of decide that. But as a general rule, if you don't have to fight, don't. Avoid, evade, and only counter if necessary. Yeah, that's where Andrew Bronca said, you know, anytime you decide to engage, you have a greater than zero chance of being injured. And that includes, you know, death. And that's one of those, uh, you got you to gotta embody that because as you make those decisions about whether you're helping a third party, whether you're helping, you know, some, your neighbor, whatever, whatever the situation comes down to, if you can evade, you're 100% guaranteed to you make it through the day. If you yeah. don't, who knows what's going to happen. And that's just from the physical standpoint, you could run into a whole lot of legal problems too. Now, the problem with legalities is getting people to understand it's more than just uh, a um, mental exercise, that it's just more than legalities. Uh, I have been sued for millions in use of force situations. It is an uncomfortable feeling. If you don't have to go through it, you don't want to go through it. It's not like, well, I got sued. I got a notch on my gun. No, you don't. You're going to go through one of the most stressful things you will ever go through, period. So, you know, if you can avoid that, Andrew's right. He's absolutely right. If you can avoid it, do it. Avoid, avoid or evade if at all possible. Yeah. And even, even when it comes to having CCW safe and other uh, self-defense ins- insurance, mm-hmm. um, you're still going to be drugged through court or through depositions, all those types of things. And they're only going to cover to a certain extent. And that's where you got to go along and say, okay, you know, if it's a million dollars, I'm covered, but what happens if it's $10 million? And I don't know about you, but I know I don't, I don't have the bank account bill write a check for even a million dollars. Sure. Sure. I, 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 you don't want to go through it. Trust me. Even though I went under, under the umbrella of my agency, it was still scary because there's these things called punitive damages. So yeah, tough mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. And everything you've ever worked for, um, reputation, all those mm-hmm. types of things, uh, you know, you can, it, it can cost you a heck of a lot, especially when you're in the mid, mid or later part of your life, you're thinking, okay, 
what did, what did I just do? And what's it going to really cost me? Cause we all want to retire. We all want to sit back and watch, you know, our kids have kids and grandkids. Um, thinking about losing all that is, uh, without a doubt, probably one of the most stressful things in the world. Yep. I would Absolutely. say for sure. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Um, as always, you've been a wealth of information. Uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, the classes that you've got scheduled for, with handgun combatives? Handguncombatives.com. There's a, there's a roster of 2020 classes on there. And uh, I, at the risk of sounding arrogant, please don't take it that way. I'm just being honest. Uh, if you're thinking about taking one of my classes, sign up now because as you'll, as you'll look at the website, you'll notice that a number of them are already sold out. And I think close to half of them were sold out last night when I was looking. A number of them are filling fast. There's a few that only have a couple slots left in it. Uh, I, you know, well, why don't you just open more slots? It's about safety, folks. It's about safety. Plus, if someone signs up for one of my classes, I believe it's because they want some of my individual attention. If the classes get too big, I can't give them that individual personal attention. So I like to keep them at a certain size. So that's why I sell them out. Yep. Well, that's uh, very responsible for you, Dave, because, uh, you know, there's a monetary component to being an instructor out there, but at the same time, you're living your values and you, and that comes through in your classes that you hold. Uh, well, thank you. That's, that's great. Yeah. That's really great. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. And we have a few requests for our loyal listeners. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having an insurance coverage and remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off. Go out and rate our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to the, the podcast app. Share this episode on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever any other social media areas that you have. We want to get out there and get instructors to be listening to us and hearing the great content that we've got from Dave and the other guests that we've had on our podcast. If you have any, have any ideas, questions, or feedback, email us at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Take some time, read a few books this year. Take care, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.